Hello and welcome to episode number 120 of the Agro Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been released onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Tuesday, February 22nd, 2011. On this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, we are joined by Ellen Brown. Ellen Brown is an author, attorney, activist, and blogger. Her most recent book is entitled Web of Debt, The Shocking Truth About Our Money System and How We Can Break Free. She also blogs at webofdebt.com. Ellen Brown, welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast. Thanks, Frank. Great to talk to you. Well, I've asked you on the show today to talk about a very specific topic, and that is the topic of food, banking, and commodity prices. But before we get into that, um, I'm somewhat familiar with your work, and I'm familiar with the work of many others in this field. And I have a suspicion that the story of rising food prices doesn't begin and end with food. Tell our listeners, who most likely have varying levels of knowledge about this topic, the background and context information that they need uh, before we start talking about food prices so that they can understand this food price issue. Well, the subject of my book, Web of Debt, which I've written like 100 articles on that <laughs> since I wrote it in 2007, I, I got, it, got it in print right when those two Bear Stearns hedge funds collapsed. And um, so it's been very, a very active field ever, ever since. And the, so the subject of the book is that all of our money is debt. It's uh, coins are mere tokens. And the, the rest of it, it all comes from debt from private banks, particularly in the US. Some countries do issue some paper money, but even there, most, most money is created as bank debt. So, um, we had a banking collapse in the fall of 2008, which actually occurred because um, the shadow banking system collapsed. It wasn't even the regular banking system. So it's quite complicated. But anyway, as a result of the collapse of 2008, the whole credit system collapsed. And that meant that our money supplies collapsed. It, sh it shrank. And that's what a depression or a recession is when there's not enough money to conduct trade and, and therefore there isn't enough money to buy things and so there's no demand for things and so businesses start shutting down, they lay off employees and then the employees have less money. So that's the whole vicious spiral that is a depression and it's the result of not having enough money in the system. Uh, the Great Depression resulted similarly because um, actually what triggered it was a, a rise in the reserve requirement, which meant, uh, so the Federal Reserve actually did it by increasing the reserve requirement that caused the banks to have to call in many of their loans. At that time, uh, the dollar was backed by gold, so it's 40% backed by gold. So if you raise the requirement from 20% to 40%, then um, that meant many loans would have to be called in because they didn't have the backing. And then people started rushing to the bank when they quit trusting the banks. They rushed the bank with their dollars and traded them in for gold. So every time $2 got traded in for gold, $3 in loans had to be either frozen, like the zombie banks today, or the loans were actually called in. So, so that, that caused the money supply to shrink. So, so now we have a, a, um, 
rising commodity prices, which every everybody's aware of, but the question is what caused them. So that's what my article is about. And I sort of, I, I'm arguing that it's not what most people think, that something else that's caused commodity prices to go up. Well, um, so basically what we experienced in 2008 was massive deflation as all these bad debts, um, as people realized that all these debts that the banks had on their balance sheet were bad. Um, it, well, it wasn't that people just suddenly got suspicious of the banks. It was that the shadow banking system is um, the repo market. Well, um, banks are insured up to $250,000. At that time, it was $150,000, and then they raised it. Um, and there are more and more people's money is going into these huge funds that have huge amounts of money. And they don't trust a bank because they've got millions to stash somewhere short term. Like they just want to park their money. Say it's a mutual fund. They just want to park the money overnight and then they want to have it available so they can invest it quickly if they, whenever they see the hot, hot thing to invest in. So instead of putting their money in banks, they were putting it in what's called the shadow banking system, which is the repo market, which is all backed by a mortgage backed securities. So it's basically a pawn shop where you you trade you leave your money there for a day and then the pawn shop gives you these mortgage backed securities which is your security for your money and it's all short term trades so when um, when Lehman Brothers collapsed then um, you know it's complicated but anyway the the dollar broke the buck in the in the money markets that it fell below being worth a dollar it fell to 97 cents and that freaked the whole market out and so all the people with their money or the funds with their money in the money markets rushed and pulled it out of the money markets so that the money markets were the backing for all these loans or vice versa the loans were the backing for the money market anyway the 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 deposits then that were supposed to be the backing for these loans suddenly disappeared and so the loans had to be called in and um, the LIBOR rate, which is the rate at which banks trade with each other, went up to 6%, which was higher than the interest rate being charged on the loans. So nobody wanted to lend at all because there's no point lending if you're going to be losing money. That's, that's what caused the savings and loans to collapse in the 1980s. So, so that's what caused lending to stop. And when there's no lending, then businesses stop because most businesses operate on credit. You know, they pay their workers and materials first and then build the product and sell the product and then they pay off the loan. So they need the advance before they can have a product to sell or before they can have a payroll. So that's what stopped everything in its tracks in 2008. And then since then, um, the Federal Reserve then stepped in and did all kinds of radical things that they've never done before, including, of course, a huge bailout for the banks, which we heard recently is $12.3 trillion, $3.3 trillion in actual borrowing of toxic securities off the books of the banks, and then another $9 trillion in short-term loans. Well, this money, obviously, obviously the Fed didn't have $12.3 trillion. They just created it on their books. So that's what everybody is suspecting is what's happening with the commodities that the, the Fed and other central banks are flooding the market with fiat money, money that they're just creating on the books and that this is driving the price up. 
But what's wrong with that theory is that um, the, the entire money supply, which is the credit system, has collapsed, has shrunk since 2006, which is when the food prices started to go up. So it's only selected things that have shot up. Other things have collapsed. The, the housing market has collapsed. So what happened was people have taken all their investment money out of the housing market and they're looking for some other safe place to put it. So first they put it in federal bonds, but then the interest rate dropped, extreme was dropped to very low levels in order for the federal government to be able to um, have a higher deficit. And so then people pulled their money out of that and put them into muni bonds. And now the muni bonds, everybody's fleeing those because there's a fear that the that the state and local governments, well, the local governments for sure could go bankrupt. And states aren't allowed to go bankrupt, but there's even a move afoot to allow them to go bankrupt. So now they're come, moving out of that. So there's really nothing le left to get into except commodities. So that's why gold and silver and food are shooting up. But then there's a couple of other wrinkles in here, which is that food is going up because in 1991, Goldman Sachs, which is always coming up with these creative financial, <laughs> financial products, they call them, um, devious ways to get around the rules and make a fast buck. Uh, so they came up with a financial product, which was like an ETF, an exchange traded fund, where they would buy futures, which in other words, they would be... Um, buying a contract to get this food in the future, but they never actually got the contract. In other words, they never actually bought the foodstuffs. They just kept rolling these contracts over. And in that way, they were able to just go buy, 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 and they never had to sell. So they never had to bring their artificial futures price in line with the real price that they would have gotten on the market. But of course, somebody's trying to buy and whoever is trying to buy their price is being driven up. And so that is what has artificially driven up the prices is speculation and a, a sort of weird form of speculation that wasn't allowed before or that wasn't, they couldn't do before, but now they can. Let me read you some headlines from yesterday. And I got these headlines from plugging them into Google's news search. Food prices hitting dangerous levels, World Bank. Skyrocketing food prices push millions into extreme poverty. Arctic communities choking on sky-high food prices. Rising food price discontent takes China's microblogs by storm. Bernanke distances himself from rising food prices. Climate change, climate change pushing up food prices. Ellen Brown, can you help us to connect the dots with some of these headlines? Can you uh, tell us what's going on here and why? Uh, well, the food is food prices are going up because of the speculation. There are various studies have found that the foods that aren't traded on the commodities market, on the futures market, haven't shot up. Things like potatoes and cassava and other staples are are at the same price. And the ones that have shot up are the heavily traded ones, grain, um, rice, and corn, and things like that. And um, in third world countries, like in Egypt particularly, the, a large part of the population is at subsistence level, which is $2 a day or less, the poverty level. So for them, most of their money actually goes for food. And it's not, not like us, where we, we go in the grocery store and we can buy, select from many different 
products and if we one isn't available maybe we'll just take another one you know they're all um what's the word they're all processed foods largely but in third world countries they go for the staples so they buy a big bag of rice and that's food for a month or whatever so when that big bag of rice doubles in price they're wiped out i mean they just can't eat so this is a quite a radical and horrible thing for people in third world countries. And that's why they're so, that was why they were such a tinderbox, which is what I wrote on the Egyptian tinderbox and why, why the match, how the match was, we know the match was political, but why did it strike right now? It struck because of this very dangerous food situation. And then the question is like Bernanke says, he's not responsible. I, I get in a lot of trouble for defending him, but, but I think that's actually true in the sense that um, quantitative easing is not responsible. What is responsible is the fact that they dropped interest rates to very low levels. So they've essentially created a carry trade where investors and banks, particularly banks, get this cheap, this very low rate. The banks can get this money, which is almost free, and then they're not making any money on loans these days because of the subprime and the capital requirements have been raised and the regulators are all over them. So they're moving out of loans into something else, which is either credit cards or speculation. So now that they can get this real cheap money, then they can take that money overseas and bet with it, speculate with it. And that's what they are doing. So it is the fault of the Fed, but I don't think it is the fault of the quantitative easing because quantitative, well, the last round was only 600 billion and the money supply is 14 trillion and, and it still is, is, has shrunk compared to what it was in 2006. So all quantitative easing has done is fill the empty cup back up to some extent. And that money actually went to the federal government and they directly bought government bonds. So it's not like it went, it didn't go to the banks. It, so it didn't go for speculation. So is this the law of unintended consequences uh, in all of its glory? Or is there something more sinister going on here with all this hot money flooding into the commodities market? Um, where do you fall in on that and? And um, what can we expect to see happen over the next three to six months with this uh, commodity bubble and, and these food prices? Well, I would say that it's both sinister and unintended. Um, every, the investors are largely us. I mean, who buys these ETFs? Ordinary people who are trying to make, who are trying to survive into retirement and Social Security is not enough to to support them and the social security is being threatened their pensions are getting cut off maybe they're losing their jobs if they have a little money they they can't make enough to live on by investing it in ordinary bonds so they speculate with it and they fall for these funds that say oh yeah you'll need some of these food etfs actually i bought a food etf and that's why i was looking at it um, and then I discovered that what I was buying was Monsanto and, you know, the big agribusinesses and these um, speculative futures bets that were, were actually, I was thinking, oh, oh, sure, I believe in agriculture, I'll put some money into helping, helping agriculture. But in fact, it was hurting agriculture by 
creaming profits off the top. So we're kind of, we're definitely the unintended consequence people, the investors who, who buy these products. I'm sure that whoever designed them must have known that what they were doing. And then above that, they may be a quite sinister. It depends on how conspiratorial you want to get. I mean, it's great copy for a book. And I did sort of slant my book that way that, um, well, there's a, you can see the Bank for International Settlements and the World Bank and all these big powers, uh, the G20 are leaning toward a one world currency. And I mean, what they're looking at is what somebody in the 50s, I think, at one of these uh, Bilderberger meetings called the, the world company. But they're looking at a company. In other words, they'll buy up, they'll own everything. But they plan to own it privately, which is quite sinister, <laughs> quite sinister for the rest of us, because we're not be, going to be among the owners. It's not necessarily, there should be some sort of global standard so that currencies can maintain their value, but a, a global currency won't work. You've got to have countries and even states, uh, uh, the more local you can get, you need to have your own your own credit system and your own currency. That's, that's my latest thing is state-owned banks. We now have a big push for state-owned banks. We've got seven states that have uh, bills pending to have their own state-owned banks where they can create credit, basically do what Wall Street does, capitalize on these 0.2% loans and um, leverage their capital instead of just spending it the same way the banks do, but in the public interest, something they can do for the people instead of taking advantage of the people. Well, and I, I have some questions to ask you about the idea of state-owned banks, but I did want you to um, address that second part of my question where I asked you about um, how you think this is going to play out in terms of food prices over the next three to six months. Well, uh, one would hope that some, some you know, last summer they're in the, um, in the regulatory, the bill that was passed, that they were supposed to put in provisions to curb all this speculation in commodities, particularly in food commodities. But then I read an article that was quite good by Frederick Kaufman that he said that he didn't think that would work because the banks can get around it faster than the legislators can come up with legislation. That's the thing that legislators don't even know what these bankers are up to until the whole thing collapses. That's what happened in 2008. It really did take everyone by surprise. Ben Bernanke said nobody could have known or you know, different people said nobody could have known this would happen. And in a way they were right because they had the banks totally regulated, but it wasn't the banks. It was something else. It was something outside the banks. I've read that, well, at this recent Davos meeting, I guess they were saying that if you regulate the banks too heavily, they'll just quit doing banking. They'll find something else to do, which means speculate. And they'll get, so they'll get into riskier, more dangerous things for all of us. So yes, it could be quite, it could be quite testy and difficult, but what I'm hoping for is um, a public banking solution, an alternative banking system. So we don't have to support these too big to fail banks. They won't be too big to fail if we have something else that we can use for um, a place to park our money and to get credit. If we're going into hyperinflation, I know a lot of people think that. I think that 
we're still in deflation. So that's that wouldn't be my concern. But whether a lot more people will starve, I think that is quite possible. So you do you believe that we'll continue to see revolutions throughout um, some of these more uh, impoverished countries throughout the world, these countries that are much more sensitive to fluctuations in food prices? Um, I know that what we see on the news, I mean, Egypt has been prominent on the news, but hundreds, perhaps thousands of other little demonstrations around the world that we never hear about are pretty much going on all the time over this food price price issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's the thing. But even there, the, I know there are innovations happening. I, I hear about them all the time. Uh, for instance, I know somebody who's working on developing a it's basically a still that you could have in every town and, and you can feed it anything green. So, you know, I mean, you don't have to be using your corn. You can be using cattails or things that are, aren't good for anything else and create energy that way. I mean, hopefully alternatives will come up as fast as fast enough to, to save the day. And then of course the, the whole permaculture trend where there there are more efficient ways to to grow food and use food i suspect we are looking at a a wave of starvation first it's funny that you mention uh permaculture and you know some of the work of for example david bloom who who's been working on using alcohol as a fuel yeah that's who i was thinking and putting um biomass into into those stills but you know, the listeners to this podcast are very familiar with many of the innovations in permaculture and, uh, you know, uh, sophisticated holistic land management and those sorts of things. But, you know, one of the things that we experience is just absolute starvation for capital for these types of innovations. And it's funny that you should mention it in these in this context because all this money is moving around speculative speculatively looking for places to go. And here we have all these great uh, innovations where we need capital, and yet never the two shall meet, it seems like. Right. Well, that would be another advantage of state-owned banks. They can take the long view. They can invest in things that are good for the people over the next 10 years instead of looking at quarterly profits and dividends and pleasing the shareholders. What can people do to help keep the cost of food stable within their own home environment? Well, I think in the U.S. we have a quite different situation. In, in somewhere like Egypt, that if if you live on rice and right the price of rice doubles, you're pretty much going to starve. But here in the U.S., there, um, I actually you're probably better at that than I am. I I live in the city, so if I'm going down with the ship, I mean, there's no place here to have a garden. <laughs> I know you could have a little a little. Uh, you know, do something with your planter box or whatever. But my particular push is to say, I'm trying to save the system before it goes down. What are the geopolitics of this food price situation? Now, we've talked about this a little bit, but I wonder if you can address, if you uh, have any suspicions on what's going on behind the scenes between the United States and some of the other great powers. Um, I know China is very sensitive to fluctuations and especially the price of rice and many of the countries in in that part of the world. Do you have a sense of maybe what's being talked about behind closed doors or maybe uh, what some of the reactions are amongst uh, some of these political elites? 
Well, I've heard different. I mean, I certainly don't have any inside scoop on politics, but I've heard people, I've heard one theory that, that we um, instigated that, I mean, that we've instigated revolutions everywhere. And the idea is to make these governments so unstable that they will eventually succumb to one world government, one world currency, or at least to domination by by the us, meaning not us personally, not the American people, but you know the powers that control our government right now. But I I don't know. I just I'm just a writer, so I read those things and <laughs> they're interesting. I think it's quite possible. I don't know. I mean, do you do you in in your research? Do you see? Um any of these countries actually taking moves to invest in some of the things that we were talking about earlier so that they are not, uh, or, or perhaps to decouple from some of these international markets so that they're not so subject to uh, the speculation? I mean, is that a feasible solution for them? Uh, well, again, it depends on the, um, the funding situation, and that's the, the angle that I'm working at, on. You know, they're in Africa now, they don't really have banks. What they have is telephones. So everybody uses their telephone like a like a banking account. And you can transfer money on your phone from one person. They're using minutes. Like they're tra transferring minutes as if it was money. But you could, in theory, expand your whole credit system without actually having additional money. In other words, you would still be trading in dollars, let's say. Well, they did this in, this is just one model, but they did this in Canada when um, in the in Alberta, the province of Alberta, where they didn't have uh, banks at all. And so they set up these publicly owned banks called the Alberta Treasury Branches. And every town had an Alberta Treasury Branch in it. And so they could trade numbers among themselves without actually adding to the without having to have the national currency to supplement it unless they went to the big city to, to spend it but but they could trade among themselves just with numbers on a screen or on in account you know trading them back and forth and in that way they can actually expand the money supply and what they did was they gave you a premium for staying within the system and if you took your money out of the bank and moved it into some other bank then then you paid a penalty and we could, you could do that now with credit cards. Credit cards are just an advance of credit. So let's say you were an African country and you decided to set up your own funding mechanism. You could use credit cards and pay off workers to build these, say, say um, um, these stills that would convert different things into alcohol. So just pay them with credit cards. Tell them that you know you're, you'll bank within our banking system within our country here. Keep, and then um, when you have the product, then you can pay back. The, then the credit's paid back. You know, so so you put the credit out there. You build the product. You sell the product. And pay off the credit. So the books balance. So you haven't inflated the system. But at some point, you have to initiate the credit cycle, and you can do that with publicly owned banks. But you could do that in any country, even if they're dollarized and are, are forced to trade in U.S. dollars, for example, they could still expand credit in dollars. 
but that, so that's something I'm working on. It's a bit complicated too. So, but doesn't the supply of credit have to reflect the productivity and potential productivity of the underlying economy? And not only that, but also the resources available to that economy. I mean, isn't that, isn't that the problem that we got in with the deflation in the first place? Um, when you speculate, then you are adding money without adding products. That's true. But if you issue credit for the purpose of um, funding infrastructure, funding jobs, then you are producing products. But that's the thing. You've got to have the money first. So you increase supply and demand at the same time. You increase the demand first by putting the money out there and paying the workers and materials. And that will create the supply, which will suck up the demand. So products and money go up at the same time. Otherwise, if you have a fixed money supply, there's no way you can expand your productivity because you don't have the money to pay for it. And what we do now in our money system is we tend to monetize or turn into money existing things like you get a loan against your house or you get a loan against your car, but that's not building anything new. So a more forward looking way of getting credit out there is to create the credit first. And what you're, what backs this credit is the thing that you will build. So, so your collateral is the future product. Let's say it's a factory, then you will collateralize your, your factory that hasn't been built yet. And, and from that factory will come the money to pay off the loan. So you'll still keep your money supply in balance, but what you'll re result with is a, a factory and some products that you didn't have before. But it seems like in the case of the real estate bubble, I mean, when all that money, or i.e. debt, was getting created, I mean, they just couldn't create it fast enough. But it turns out that they had created so much debt that it was just way beyond what anybody could actually assume over a reasonable course of time. So doesn't there have to be some kind of ceiling or limit to the amount of uh, increase in the money supply through credit that, that can be allowed? Well, I think I, I think that's sort of a misconception. What what they did with the they collateralized existing things. They weren't creating new products. They were collateralizing. Well, I suppose they were building some houses. But basically, you're turning your home into money. And the reason they had to go into subprime and all these loans that would necessarily default was there was a huge demand by these big investors, the big funds, for this repo market and for the money market. And to back all that money, to park it in this shadow banking system, they had to have real estate chopped up into pieces in these mortgage-backed securities. So there was a huge demand for the securities, and for that they had to. They were they were getting any every anybody in sight who would sign on the dotted line. They'd sign them up so they have something to back these bonds that they could then give to the investors overnight for their overnight, for their security, for their investment in the shadow banking system. And th so that was one thing. Plus, you had all these shady things going on, like that John Paulson case that we saw where Goldman Sachs, John Paulson, the big investor, went to uh, Goldman Sachs and he said, uh, design me a, a, a bundle of securities that I can bet against. In other words, he wanted a bundle that would lose. But Goldman Sachs didn't tell the investors that they were investing in something that, that had been set, had been designed to fail. Plus, 
they insured all this bad mortgages with mortgage-backed security, I mean, sorry, with credit default swaps. And in order to get paid on the credit default swaps, you had to have an 8% default rate. So that means they had to make sure that there were some really bad loans in this bundle to make sure it would default. So they were sure that they could collect on the insurance. And since some of it was bad, um, somebody used the analogy of the um, Burger King or McDonald's or whatever it was where, where they had the salmonella in the hamburger. You don't know which hamburger has the has the parasites in it, so you don't touch any of it. <laughs> so all the hamburgers bad because you don't know where the parasites are. So, so the whole basis of our money system is wrong. It's based on thinking that you can't get a loan unless you put some existing thing up as backing. And the bank, in other words, is putting something up there. They're always backing their loans with collateral, but the collateral was not good because they just didn't have enough collateral to back all the demand for credit. But if it's a public credit system, you don't need to back it with anything. It's the full faith and credit of the United States. We know this model works because it worked in Benjamin Franklin's colony of Pennsylvania, where they had a land bank where they just issued, basically they printed paper and lent it to the farmers. And the paper represented the the t the t tickets you know that or the receipts of the government for goods and services or in this case for a loan and then the tickets would come back with interest and and so that the interest funded the government it worked there it worked for the Chinese that's how they operate their system they issue the credit first and build things so they're they're monetizing their future productivity not monetizing existing assets where you have to keep scrambling around to find old assets that already exist in order to have a money supply. So that's what I think. We'll, I think what we're suffering from is a failure of the money system. And we can fix it by fixing the money system. And like you say, there are all these great innovations out there just waiting to be discovered. And all they need is some funding. And we can fix that. Well, I've heard many argue, as you talk about um, the full faith of the United States government backing um, credit as it's issued, I've heard many argue that a United States sovereign debt default is inevitable. Is this true? And if so, when and how do you expect it to happen? No, it's not inevitable, and I don't think it will ever happen because— We've been in debt since 1836, and we haven't defaulted yet. We have never paid off the federal debt since 1836. It just, if you look at a chart, it just keeps going up and up and up. In other words, because all money is debt, our public debt is our private money supply. And if you didn't have a public debt, you wouldn't have a private money supply. And in fact, our public debt of 14 trillion is equivalent to our mo private money supply, which should be 14 trillion, but I don't think it's quite up there. That's the thing where we're, um, we need a little more, <laughs> a little more money in the money supply, a little more credit, a little more debt. <clears throat> and, and our debt is owed in dollars and our federal reserve can create dollars. So that we'll never default. What, we, what the other thing that people are concerned about is that they'll print their way out of it and that that will hyper, hyperinflate the system. But I would argue that it also will not hyperinflate the system. And the reason is our money already is debt. If you turn it, turn the debt into dollars, all you're doing is acknowledging what we've got out there 
already. I mean, people trade bonds without even necessarily cashing them in. They're negotiable bonds. That um, a, a dollar bond is a dollar is good for a dollar's worth of goods and services in among U.S. You know, backed by the full faith and credit of the United States. A dollar bill and a dollar bond are, are worth the same. They're the same thing. In fact, that's why dollar bonds are respected around the world. They're just as good as dollars. <clears throat> so if you turned all the bonds into dollars and ripped up the bonds, you would have the same money amount of money out there as you do now. Okay, but I mean, doesn't it seem like uh, like a situation like in Ireland or a situation like in Greece where I guess basically what has happened is their bond markets have collapsed. Um, you don't foresee a similar situation happening, happening in the United States? No, for several reasons. First of all, <clears throat> they are forced to use the euro and nobody is in, in a position to create euros to create the, the interest to pay off these debts. It's, it's the classic debt virus problem where you borrow money and you have to pay back more money than you borrowed. And yet in the euro system, there's only a finite fixed amount of euros and the central banks are not allowed to print euros. So if, you, or if you're in debt, you're going to necessarily have to pay back more money than you borrowed. Where's this extra money going to come from? It, that's why the whole system is collapsing. And now the European Central Bank has stepped in and started quietly printing some money, which is what they have to do. And in fact, Ireland stepped in and quietly printed some money. And the European Central Bank said, well, that's all right. They sort of looked the other way, as long as it wasn't too much. And they, they kept it low key because this is what they have to do in order to pay the interest on an expanding debt. That's just the nature of a debt system. But we aren't in that position because we do print our money and we can print our money. And what just like we did um, with our deficit, that this recent deficit was exactly the size of the amount of money that the Federal Reserve printed in quantitative easing too and used to buy government bonds. So basically the Federal Reserve is funding the government debt interest-free because the Federal Reserve re rebates the interest to the government after deducting their costs. They weren't set up that way. Originally, when the Federal Reserve was set up, they had every intention of charging us interest on our money, printing our money and turning around and charging us interest on it. But in the 1960s, Wright Patman figured out that's what they were up to. He was head of the House Banking and Currency Committee, and he tried to get them nationalized. He said, you boys are printing our money. You should be. This should be a, a truly federal agency like you purport to be. So to avoid being nationalized, in other words, giving up their private shareholders, <laughs> private, um, they basically are the, are the uh, union of the banks. To avoid giving that up, they agreed to rebate their profits after taking out their costs. So they take out about 15% rebate, 85%. So that's the cheapest way the government can get money. So all this hype about the government, that the Fed is printing money and paying off the debt with printed money, that's actually the easiest, most direct way to fund the debt. In fact, what the government should do is just print the money itself, but that would totally freak everyone out. But they could print the money themselves without hurting anything. Money is just an acknowledgement of 
goods and services delivered to the government. That's what it is. It's a receipt. It says, we the people acknowledge that you have paid us whatever, your military service, and here's your payment. Go out and spend it in the community on an equivalent in goods and services. That's what money is. And pay it back to us in taxes or in fees or in different ways. There are different ways to... If you get too much money out there, you can pull it back in. But as long as you have high unemployment, like we do now, <clears throat> putting more money in the system will just create more jobs and create more productivity. So it won't drive up prices. It will drive up supply. And when supply and demand go up together, prices remain stable. But it doesn't seem like a lot of that money that's getting put into the system is actually ending up in the hands of working people, or am I mistaken? Well, it's preventing working people to have to pay more taxes, which would cause a revolt here. I mean, if we, as it is, they're talking about cutting back on all these services that the government provides, which that alone could provide, could cause a revolt. What about all these people that live on Social Security if they start cutting Social Security? So in order to keep the Social Security that we've got, they do go over budget. I mean, of course, the obvious thing to do would be to cut the military, but for some reason, nobody ever mentions that. It's just not even on the table that they should cut the military. My argument would be they should turn the military into a, a civil army that would, uh, you know, actually do something good for the U.S. I, I'm with, uh, I can't remember which president said that, that we should uh, mind our own business and let other countries <laughs> mind their business. If we, if we put all that military power to use in the U.S., building roads and other things that we need, we would have a dynamite economy. Well, Ellen Brown, I would like to thank you for joining us and helping us understand this issue of food prices. Uh, is there anything around specifically this issue of food prices that we didn't address that you think uh, is important for the listeners to know or be aware of? Well, since your listeners are the the agricultural community. I, one proposal that I thought was very good was that uh, we should go back to the old system of parity pricing that, that they had in the 30s and 40s under Roosevelt, where um, it, it wasn't subsidizing the farmers by paying them not to grow. They were encouraged to grow, but you, your people probably know this better than I do, but they, but they were paid a fair price for their for the, in other words they're pay, paid their costs plus something over that um and if they couldn't get that price whatever it was the parity price the fair price basically if they couldn't get that price the government would buy it and what happened was the government wound up with these big reserves and in that way they could they could prevent prices shooting up because whenever prices would start to go up they would just dump some of the grain on the market and cool the thing off. And in the end, the government made money on that deal. So it wasn't like they were subsidizing. They actually did make money. They were just acting as the, you know, the reserve basically to just stabilize. They were stabilizing the whole system rather like the Federal Reserve does for the banks now. And that was done even under Clinton. And But it was with deregulation, the whole thing went away. But you remember when we used to supply Russia with grain? That was from our grain reserves. So we could do that again, and it would might, might stabilize things. That concludes my interview with author, attorney, and activist Ellen Brown. I'd like to thank Ellen Brown for joining me for this episode of the podcast and explaining to us some of the dynamics of the commodities and food market. Um, 
the rising food price issue is a, is a very big issue and will continue to be one. And so I did want to address that at least somewhat in this podcast. Next week, Ellen Brown will be back again briefly to talk about state-run banks. And I will also be joined by a guest who will be talking a little bit about uh, permaculture and mythology. So please be sure to tune in for that. A reminder that this and all episodes of the Agro-Innovations podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, visit creativecommons.org. This is the Agro-Innovations podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.